Again, it is my joy to come before you and to open up the Word of God this morning. Before we look at Matthew chapter 21, if you would like to turn there, may I say that we never reach spiritual maturity as Christians apart from a rich and precise understanding of the Bible, which is the Word of God. The Lord prayed before he was crucified to the Father for us, saying, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And so if we're going to be sanctified, we have to have the word of God dwelling in us and conforming us to the image of Christ. And my role as your pastor is to once again stand before you and preach the word. And your role is to apply it. To be more than just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so this morning we continue our study of the gospel of Matthew. We've been going through it verse by verse over the past couple of years. And I once again invite you to dine at the table of truth, if I can put it that way, where we can all find a cornucopia of spiritual blessing and nourishment. Matthew chapter 21, before we look at the text itself, may I remind you again of the context of this particular passage. We come now to Monday when, well, actually we're going to come to Tuesday, but on Monday, the Lord has entered through the east gate of Jerusalem. He has been hailed as the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Thousands have spread out their garments They have thrown palm leaves on the ground. They have shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In other words, save us now. They've been crying. And it's been an amazing spectacle of worship and praise as we have looked at these people and what they did at that particular time. Albeit their worship and their praise was misguided because they didn't understand that Jesus was coming to save them from their sins, not from Rome. It was Passover time and the city was crowded with over two million people. There would soon be over a quarter of a million lambs slaughtered. And the brook Kidron would be filled with blood as it drained down out of the temple sacrifice area, the very brook that the Lord would soon step across as he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And little did the people know that the Lamb of God, who would once for all take away their sin, was voluntarily making his way to the altar of the cross. And over the next week, which is commonly called the Passion Week, Jesus will once again reveal his messianic credentials to the people and to the religious leaders. But because of Israel's rebellion, he does not enter the city with great joy and excitement, but rather with tears. He comes as both priest and king, ascending not to a throne, but immediately will enter into his temple, as we will see. In fact, Mark 11:11 says that he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. 
So this is the scene. He's entered into the city. He's come into the temple. He looks around, and as we're going to understand, he sees abomination after abomination. But because it's late, he returns to Bethany. He sees the temple being nothing more than a den of thieves. His father's house, a den of thieves. And frankly, like so many neo-evangelical churches today, the temple had been desecrated by not only greedy priests and religious entrepreneurs trying to get rich off of false worship, but even the worship itself was far from what it should be. So seeing all of this, the holiness of God is naturally offended beyond human understanding. And the father's wrath continues to escalate to a red hot burning, all of which will ultimately be poured out upon the sun. But again, because it was already late and Jesus was exhausted from that day, Jesus departs for Bethany with the twelve, no doubt to fellowship once again and lodge with his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so this morning I offer you three very simple categories to understand verses 12 through 22. We're going to see this text unfold, and as we do, we will see, first of all, a condemnation of worship. We will secondly see a denunciation of Israel as a nation. And third, we, thirdly, we're going to see a call to faith. Now, with that in mind, let's follow along as I read from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? Thou hast prepared praise for thyself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith. And do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. It's fascinating as we study the life and the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus began his ministry on Passover and he will finish it as well 
on Passover. And on both occasions, Jesus cleansed the temple. We read in John 2, beginning in verse 14, a description of the first occasion when he cleansed the temple on Passover some three years earlier. And there we read that he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Well, obviously, his rebuke three years prior had no effect. The Jews had neglected his warnings as they had the warnings of the prophets in years gone by. And now, three years later, Jesus is about to reenact the same judgment. Let me try to help you understand the scene in the temple. The temple had an outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And this is the place where the non-Jews could come and could gather. But also, it was a place that the priests had turned into what we would call a mini mall. All right. It was a place of merchandise. And the high priest, a man by the name of Annas, was really the kingpin of the whole deal. He was a corrupt high priest. He was, as we might say in our modern vernacular, the drug lord of the temple. And he was fabulously wealthy because of all that went on there. In fact, the court of the Gentiles was labeled the Bazaar of Annas. Now, this marketplace had a variety of franchises that you could purchase. Merchants would purchase the right to sell various things from the high priest, of course. And there they would sell wine and food and oil and salt and sacrificial animals. And they would exchange the foreign currency and the money for the people that would come from far away, especially at Passover. Providing for them the proper denominations of currency for the temporal temple offerings. And of course... They would charge a mere 25 percent of the amount for their extortion. And whatever they sold, they always had to give a percentage of that back to the high priest. And then he would in turn share the loot with the other priests. In fact, according to Levitical law, if you came to Passover, you had to have your sacrificial animal pass a test. And the inspection, of course, was done by the priests, and naturally, only the animals purchased through the priests would pass the inspection. And so historians indicate that many times people would have to pay as much as ten times for what the animal would normally cost. By the way, folks, we shouldn't be too shocked. Things like this continue to go on. You can look, for example, at the Roman Catholic Church, and they have sold, for example, more splinters of the cross than it would take to build the ark. You find the Mormons looking at your tax returns and making sure that you gave 10% of your income so that they can continue to fund their cult. And even in neo-evangelical circles, we find faith healers and prosperity teachers making literally billions off of desperate, ignorant, and gullible people 
they collect seed, faith, donations. Uh, I remember seeing not too long ago one charlatan selling for, for a mere $20 a prayer hanky that he would pray over and send back to you that would supposedly have some supernatural power. They sell all kinds of gimmicks. One expert that is a friend of mine that knows well what goes on in the word faith movement described the movement as a, quote, Christian drug cartel. Many people make money off of the gospel, even though it's perverted by them. And you see this popularized on especially uh, certain television networks, which have, as I call, a religious version of world wrestling. And people send in millions of dollars to these organizations. Entrepreneurs now dominate the evangelical landscape, making millions off of ear-tickling books and tapes and seminars. In fact, if you look at the mega churches around the country today, you will see that they have their own version of an outer court where they have food malls, bookstores, fitness centers, coffee shops, restaurants, theaters. In fact, the whole goal of the seeker sensitive movement is to make sure that the consumer and the provider are both happy. We see, therefore, in many churches, things like wrestling exhibitions, weightlifting exhibitions, theatrical presentations, Elvis impersonations. Uh, some have even had mock striptease. Anything you can do to somehow bring in the people so that you can get the money. We see the same type of mentality in many circles in the Christian entertainment industry, Christian music, gospel music, where they peddle, for the most part, superficial and even deceptive music. Artists, many that I know, charge thousands of dollars to come and perform for you. All in the name of worship. All in the name of Jesus. So, folks, there have been hucksters and con men and con women by the thousands that have discovered how to get rich off of the gospel, how to fleece people just like the money changers. And they all do it under the guise of ministry and worship. So having seen the sacrilege in his father's house on the day before, Jesus now returns to the temple on Tuesday morning to physically remove the extortionists and the crooks and thereby pronounce condemnation upon Israel's worship. And so in verse 12, we see that in, a, in an act of righteous indignation, Jesus overturns the, the tables and the seats of the money changers. And obviously displays an amazing power here. It's fascinating to me that there's no hint of resistance, which I believe is, again, a foretaste of his second coming. When he comes again the next time, he will not come as the meek and the mild Jesus, but he will come as Revelation tells us in Revelation 19:12, with his eyes a flame of fire from his mouth will come a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's fascinating, as I think about it, that even the temple guards offered no resistance against Jesus when he did all of this. By the way, the temple guards had permission from Rome to kill any non-Jew 
that entered into the Jewish portion of the temple. And yet here with Jesus doing all that he was doing, even though it was on the outer court, they offered no resistance. And certainly mere humans are powerless in the presence of almighty God. In fact, you may be interested to be reminded that a few days later, there would be a massive army of mobbed Jewish people, along with 600 Roman soldiers and the temple police, all following Judas to come and arrest Jesus. In fact, in John 18, Jesus says to them as they come to him, whom are you seeking? And the text tells us that they answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said that, the text says that they drew back and they fell to the ground. You see, folks, the word I am was the designation of almighty God that he used on numerous occasions. My point is simply this. The power of the name of I am the preexistent Christ, Yahweh, and the authority of his word is absolutely and utterly irresistible. Nothing has changed, by the way, friends. This is the same Jesus that we serve. Amen. This is our Jesus. What great joy we have knowing that we are more than conquerors. As Paul said, Hooper Nikeo, Nikeo, Nike, we get the tennis shoe. We're conquerors. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. So this was the power of Jesus. In fact, he was so powerful in the temple that Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 11, verse 16, that no one was even permitted to carry goods through the temple. The idea here is that is that he made them drop everything and run. You see, the court of the Gentiles was near the east gate of Jerusalem, the east gate of the city, and it was a main thoroughfare for commerce. And, of course, the people would traipse even through the temple area with no respect for the holiness of God and for the sacred nature of the temple. No fear of God whatsoever. So in his righteous indignation, verse 13 he says to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. By the way, so much for being seeker sensitive. In effect, he's saying you can go buy your latte somewhere else. Now, this must have been shocking to the people. They had to be terribly confused. Because on the one hand, they're thinking, oh, wait a minute. A few days ago, we're saying, Hosanna, we're saying, save us now, and, and, and you're the king, and, and you're coming and you're attacking us? I, I thought you came to attack Rome, not us. Keep that in mind. We'll come to back, back to that in a moment. It's a very important concept. Notice what happens after things settle down, obviously, a little bit. In verses 14 and 15, the blind and the lame come to him in the temple. He heals them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Now, let me try to describe the scene for you here. It's an amazing scene as I think about it. You've got money changers, you've got merchants, you've got priests and you've got temple guards all peeking around the corners of the temple and peering into the main section there where Jesus is. 
And as we would say down here in Tennessee, they've got that possum in the headlight look. They're thinking, my goodness, what is happening here? And the multitudes of the people are on the outer courts and they're looking in with their mouths hanging open. And there had to have been doves flying all around, doves that were were in the cages because he'd knocked them over. And this text doesn't tell us, but they also had many animals there that they would be selling. And so you've probably got animals running around as well. Everything is in chaos. And then you've got the text says children, which could be translated literally boys. And these were probably 13 year old young men that had now gone through their bar mitzvah. This was their first first Passover. And they're participating for the first time and they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, this had to have been a chaotic scene. And then you add to that. Jesus now standing in the midst of all of this and the lame and the blind and the diseased now are coming into Jesus and he's healing them. And folks, you know that when a blind person would be healed or a lame person could suddenly walk, they're not going to quietly kind of walk. They're going to be jumping up and down and shouting hallelujah. I would. Now. All of the priests are seeing this and keep in mind, they think that Jesus is a phony. That's what they're convinced that he is, that he is, as as they had said earlier, that he heals by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So they're thinking this guy has come in here and, and he's he's demonic, even though down deep they knew better than that. And they're also thinking he's healing the blind and the lame and the leprous. Doesn't he realize that the reason these people are this way is because of their wickedness, because of their sin? He's getting in the way of God. Is it any wonder then why the text says they became indignant? Literally, they became filled with rage. It's like they said, enough, enough, enough. And so they confront him in verse 16. They say to him, do you hear what these are saying? Referring to the... Young boys that are singing, crying Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? By the way, I I always laugh at these encounters with the Pharisees and the scribes when they encounter Jesus. I mean, I mean, only a fool would want to verbally spar with the omniscient Lord of the universe. And every time they did this, they were humiliated and didn't really know what to say. And this is what happened here again. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 8, 2, where we have this very phrase about infants and nursing babes. And by the way, this would refer to children under three. This was the age that most Jewish children were weaned. And if you look at this passage in Psalm 8, you don't need to turn there. It's a familiar passage, but I want to read it to you. Beginning in verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So literally what the Lord is saying here. Out of this text, because of of this actual text, 
is that he is Lord of all, because this text is, is in essence saying that, that Yahweh is Lord of all. From the majestic splendor of the heavenly bodies to the most dependent, innocent of all of his creation, a nursing infant, all of these things are going to glorify his name. And so he's saying, hey, if infants and nursing babes attest to my glory, why would you be surprised at these young boys? So Jesus is again affirming his deity because he's constantly offering testimony to his messianic claims. It's as if he's saying once again, though my kingdom is not of this world, I am the king. And I have come to reign in the hearts of men. I have come to conquer sin and death and Satan. And dear friends, I hope you can now begin to see why the same people who shouted Hosanna in the highest on Monday are going to turn right around and scream, crucify him on Friday. Because King Jesus now has attacked Judaism, not Rome. My, how his approval rating plummeted. You see, his messianic claims combined with taking possession of the temple have now peaked every stratum of Jewish leadership. Indeed, Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But what the people did not want to understand is that their greatest enemy was not Rome, but God. Now, please understand this. You see, they were not merely slaves to Rome, but slaves to sin. And sin is the enemy of holiness. Sin makes every sinner the enemy of God. And the remedy is only through the righteousness of Christ. When we place our faith in him and cry out for his mercy and his grace. And here, folks, is the good news of the gospel. At that point, he willingly and lovingly forgives us of our sins. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. This is the great doctrine of justification where we are now declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Jesus said in John 3:18, he who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. You see, what Israel didn't understand is that before they could ever be delivered from wicked oppression. They, they, they needed to be delivered, and more importantly so, from the bondage of sin. And this is why Jesus focused on their worship. He didn't come in talking about social issues and cultural issues and economic issues. John MacArthur has an excellent quote in light of this. Here's what he had to say, and I quote, The great problem with society is not injustice, inequity, crime, or even immorality, pervasive and destructive as those evils might be. Society's evil of evils has always been its abandonment of God. Folks, let me digress for a moment. Very often we complain about great difficulties in our culture. And it's easy to jump on that bandwagon because that's what you hear all the time in the news, right? And in the papers. And in politics, we hear complaints about it's the economy, stupid. Remember that phrase, you know, 
Uh, it's health care. It's abortion. It's homosexuality. It's social security. It's the war in Iraq or whatever. But, folks, the real problem in our culture today is that of worship. But nobody talks about that, right? Nobody talks about that. Because, you see, the real problem is sin, and the only remedy to sin is the gospel of Christ. Whether it's a problem in our nation, or frankly, if it's a problem in your home, ultimately, the solution is rooted in worship. In fact, in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, Peter reminds us that judgment begins where? It begins with the household of God. That's why there needs to be a purging and a cleansing and a purifying process occur in each of our hearts, especially in the church. And by the way, the the way the Lord very often brings this about is through divine chastening because of our rebellion, because of our recalcitrance, because of our hard heartedness. And folks, because our greatest enemy is sin, therefore, our greatest need is forgiveness And we have that when we confess our sin. And he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the wicked, unbelieving religious leaders confront Jesus. Jesus then responds by quoting Psalm 8 2. And then verse 17 says that he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. It's interesting. There's no ongoing debate there. There's no begging and pleading for them to be saved. There's no extended altar calls. There's no forcing people to somehow do anything. But rather, he just publicly condemns their worship. He speaks the truth in love and he departs and he goes back to Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived goes there with his disciples. And then the next day, on Wednesday, he makes his way back towards Jerusalem with the disciples. And here we have a fascinating object lesson as he encounters a fig tree. And keep in mind the little outline. First, we have seen the condemnation of Israel's worship. And now we're going to see the denunciation of Israel as a nation. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree he, uh, by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. My, what a curious scenario we have here. Perhaps I can help you understand it. Throughout Scripture, when you read about a fig tree, you will see that it was a very important fruit in ancient life. And frankly, it still is. It not only provided wonderful shade that was uh, very important in that hot, arid land, but it also provided very important fruit that they used in many ways. But also, frequently, we see that the fig tree is used as a symbol of the nation Israel. You can see that in in Hosea 9.9 and Joel 1.7, a number of passages. And it was also, therefore, a, a symbol of peace and prosperity. 
In fact, the fig tree was one of the fruits described in the list of fruits that would be a part of the promised land. When the children of Israel would enter, they would find fig trees. In 1 Kings 4.25, we read, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and fig tree. They're a description of the prosperity under Solomon's reign. But likewise, as we read scripture, we see that divine judgment upon his people often included the destruction of their fig trees and certainly of their vineyards and many other plants. We see that, for example, in Jeremiah 5:17. Now, fig trees would normally produce fruit as it sprouted its leaves. All right, so if you would see leaves, you would see figs. But in this case, you see leaves, but you don't see any figs. Something's wrong here. There's no fruit. In fact, Mark 11:13 gives us some added insight here. It says that it was not even the season for figs. So it is especially interesting here that this particular tree offered the pretense of being fruitful, yet it was barren. Evidently, other trees, other fig trees that would have been around that same area didn't have the leaves on it. But there was one here that, oh, we got leaves. Maybe you begin to see where I'm going. Where Jesus is taking us. By the way, it's also interesting to me that it takes three years from the time you plant a fig tree before it will bear fruit. And that reminds me of the three years of Jesus' ministry that should have produced fruit, the fruit of repentance in Israel, but did not. So seeing this unproductive barren tree, one that was planted in good soil and therefore promised through its through its leaves that it would bear fruit, yet didn't. Jesus cursed it. Friends, what a powerful parable designed to portray Israel's pretense of spirituality. To somehow reveal the the hypocrisy of their religious culture. One that bore no spiritual fruit. Despite all of the advantages that they had. It reminds me in Isaiah 5, you will recall that in that text... God speaks through the prophet and he talks about his vineyard, which was the house of Israel. And he ultimately curses them because of their hypocrisy. And in that text, we read that God gave them all that they needed to prosper, not only physically, but spiritually. The text says that he planted his vineyard on a fertile hill. That he removed all of the stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. And then it's interesting in that text it says that he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. He, he, he expected it to produce good and tasteful fruit. But all it produced was buhushim in Hebrew. A worthless, sour, inedible berry. And that text also says that the men of Judah were to be his delightful plant. And then in verse 7 of chapter 5, he says, Thus, 
In other words, because of this, I looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Literally in the Hebrew, it's a play on words. He says, I looked for mishpat and I get mispah. I look for tzedakah and I get tzedakah. I'm looking here for justice and I get bloodshed. I look for righteousness and all I see is a cry of distress. And therefore he pronounced judgment upon his people. By the way, he did so for the very same reasons that I believe America is experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment to this day. Because there is a obvious parallel of the sins of Judah of that day in the United States. There were really six of them. He cursed them for their greedy materialism, for their drunken dissipation, for their defiant debauchery of sexual immorality. He cursed them because they redefined morals, calling good evil and evil good. He cursed them because of their haughty humanism. The whole idea of postmodernism where truth is defined by man, not by God. He cursed them because they had crooked politicians and judges. And he cursed them because of their corrupt spiritual leaders. And friends, quite frankly, if God does not judge the United States of America for those same reasons, he owes Judah an apology. Let me digress for a moment again help you understand why Jesus was so upset. And I fear that many times we we fail to consider what I'm about to share with you. And that is to understand the theological significance of God's chosen people, the Jew. The theological significance of Israel. You see, as we look back in the Old Testament, we see that God took a family, the family of Abraham, and eventually made them a nation. And throughout Scripture, as we read Scripture, we see that there were seven basic duties that these people had before them to honor the Lord their God. I'll summarize them for you very briefly. They were, first of all, to proclaim the true God. And this was illustrated by his miraculous works in their midst. Secondly, they were to reveal the Messiah, the anointed one who would be the savior of the world. Thirdly, they were. To be God's priest nation, as God told them on Mount Sinai through Moses, he said in Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me or you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, a priest is a mediator between God and man. And all of Israel was to serve as a mediator for God to the rest of the world. They were also to preserve and transmit divine revelation, the scripture. They were fifthly to show the faithfulness of God, sixthly to show the blessedness of serving God, and seventh to show God's grace in dealing with sin. But they had failed. And in order for them to accomplish all of these things that God had called them to do and empowered them to do, he gave them the promised land. A region about 80 miles by 150 miles, about the size of Vermont, a land in the middle of two great civilizations, Egypt and Mesopotamia. And because of the Arabian desert, all of Asia, all of Africa and all of Europe had to pass through what was called and still is called the land between, which is the land of Israel. 
In fact, Israel is the linchpin. It is that place that connects three continents. So God gives them all of these advantages, places them in the most strategic location in all of the world. And because God is faithful to his promises, we see that he continues to, even to this day, protect and preserve not only his land, but his people. Even though they're rebellious. And he will continue to do so, my friends, until all of his redemptive purposes have been fulfilled and he glorifies himself. In fact, we look in the Bible and we see that 4,000 years ago he promised that someday he would have a throne in Jerusalem. And you know what? That's precisely where his throne will be. Middle, the Middle East has always been the theater of redemptive history. If you stop and think about it, Israel continues to be the most fought over piece of real estate in the world. Why? Because it's God's promised land to his promised people. And because Satan is the God of this world right now and God is allowing him to run rampant. And Satan is doing everything he can to prevent God from accomplishing all that he has decreed to do. And it's amazing as you think of the Jew, they are the most ancient and the most persecuted people in the world. The Jews rose out of the ashes of the Holocaust and in 1948 they became a nation. Currently they have a population of about 6 million people, about 4.2 million are Jews. And they are surrounded by 22 Arab countries with 5 million square miles and 144 million people, all of which hate them. And those 144 million people are supported and aligned with the whole Muslim world of one billion people. And if you know anything about Islam, you'll know that they have had in their sights world domination from the beginning. So the Muslim world is a world that is an area twice the size of the United States, 672 times the size of minuscule Israel. And yet the barbaric rage of radical Islam continues to escalate. But isn't it interesting they cannot defeat little bitty Israel. You know, I have to laugh. I'm not sure about you, but I never hear anybody talk about the Canaanites, about the Edomites, about the Moabites, about the Jebusites, about the Hittites. But every time I turn on the news, all I hear are things about the Israelites. Dear friends, God is not through with the Jew. So again, in this text, Jesus cursed the fig tree, symbolically denouncing the nation Israel for their unbelief. Because as John 1.11 tells us, he came into his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And friends, I would hasten to add that Israel as a nation today, is spiritually dead. They're awaiting the second coming of Christ and they don't realize that. That will be the time when God will soften their hearts, 
currently, according to Romans 11:25, God has hardened their hearts. The text says until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, when the last person of the church age has been saved and the great snatching away, the great rapture of the church occurs, God will then judge all of the wicked of the world. He will judge the apostate church and he will judge apostate Israel. It's commonly known in the study of eschatology, the study of the end times, the study of prophecy as Daniel's 70th week. We're waiting for that to occur. And then according to Romans 11:26, when the Lord comes again that second time, all Israel will be saved. So God's not finished with them yet. But friends, what a powerful lesson we see with this fig tree. A lesson for all of us. And I hope you catch this. Beloved, God absolutely hates hollow professions. Professions of faith that bear no fruit. God despises religious pretense. He despises hypocrisy. It is an abomination to his eyes. It is a stench into his nostrils. His most stinging rebukes were reserved for this very type of thing. And frankly, unless there is repentance, he will eternally curse those who hate him and those who pretend to love him, even as he cursed the pretentious fig tree, symbolic of Israel. Mark's gospel adds in Mark eleven twenty that the tree withered from the roots up. And it's interesting to note that 40 years after Jesus cursed this tree, Israel was indeed cut down by the Roman legion and the city was destroyed along with the temple. Folks, there's a great lesson here for our church and for all churches. My, how we must guard ourselves from religious pretense. I think of so many, quote unquote, churches that offer a prominent profession. So many churches that have branches and bows that are that are filled with the foliage of programs. Beautiful leaves of music and ministries. But when you look close upon the tree, there is no fruit of holiness. And friends, such, is a, such, such a pretense of godliness is merely a harbinger of judgment. So many churches have Ichabod written across the door. Ichabod merely meaning the glory has departed. And friends, we must guard ourselves from that very thing. It's so easy to look godly. To have a religious veneer. The beloved. The Lord of the church will inspect his church. And if his church is like that, which I have just described. He will curse that church, even as he cursed that fig tree. And eventually the withering decay of divine abandonment will destroy that church from the root up. And in time, the acts of divine judgment will clear it away. And that fruitless stump will never more be seen. 
O child of God, we must never be counted among that group. Well, as our time slips away, we look here and we see in verse 20, after Jesus now has condemned Israel's worship by cleansing the temple and denouncing Israel as a nation, cursing the fig tree, the disciples marvel and they say to him, how did the fig tree wither at once? In other words, they're amazed at the power of Jesus here. And this is where, thirdly, we see a call to faith. Verse 21, Jesus answers, says to them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Friends, this is such a precious promise. You see, Jesus is not implying here that if you have faith, you can do sensational miracles. You know, get the mountain to jump into the sea. The Lord never did anything like that. Jesus never capitulated to the Jews that were always looking for some spectacular sign. He knew the hardness of their heart. He wasn't going to fall for that. But here, Jesus is literally using a common metaphor of that day. You see it in Jewish literature of that time. The idea of a rooter up of mountains. That was a, a, a phrase, a term used to describe great and powerful religious people and religious leaders. And so the point here is what Jesus is saying is, listen, men, when you in faith believing ask me to do something for my glory. When you ask God something that is consistent with his will. He is going to do it. The same power that withered this fig tree is available to you. You too can see God perform marvelous wonders if you have faith and you do not doubt. In John 14, verse 13, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In other words, if you ask anything that is consistent with my will, for my glory, in other words, for my name's sake, I will do that. In 1 John 5, 14, the apostle tells us this is the confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. By the way, there and in other passages, there is clearly a prerequisite with all of this, and that is that there must be heartfelt obedience to the Lordship of Christ. That's, that's crucial. So, in other words, the key to answered prayer, my friends, is, is faith without doubt, being submissive to the will of God. And then we pray, therefore, in accordance to what God would want, to what would bring Him glory. We don't pray for just our wants and our desires. In fact, James warns us in James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. May I give you an example? Very often our prayers are selfish. Our prayer might go something like this. Lord, cure me of my cancer. And you say, my goodness, what's wrong with that prayer? Well, it certainly depends upon the motive, but let me say it a little bit differently. Lord, cure me of my cancer, for indeed it is painful and I long to be free from it. But do that only if it will glorify you. And Lord, if it is not your will for my cancer to be cured, I pray that you will give me all that I need 
to endure it and to give you glory in the midst of my anguish. Because, Lord, there's nothing more important in my life than seeing you glorified. And I will trust you, come what may. You see the difference? And, folks, for a person to have that type of perseverance and that type of joy, that type of peace that surpasses all comprehension, that is a miracle tantamount to a fig tree withering from its roots up. You remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he prayed three times for a thorn of the flesh to be removed from him. But God denied him and said that it's a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him, to keep him from exalting himself. And therefore, in verse 9 of that text, Paul says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And then later on he said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Folks, in closing, may I ask you, when you think of your own prayer life, do you want what God wants? For your life, for your career, for your family, for your children, for your church? Do you even know what God wants for your wife, for your husband, for your children, for your church, for your community? You know, the only way we're ever going to know His will is to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and then to obey His will. But we've got to know it before we can obey it. And in His will... We will find there's so many things in Scripture that address this. But we know, for example, that it's his will, first of all, for you to be saved. It's his will for you to follow the Lord in baptism. It's your it's God's will for you to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul and strength to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul tells us that it's his will that we be sanctified. The idea of of practical purity. In other words, it's his will that we abstain from sexual sin that uh, it's his will that we uh, control our body. It's the temple of God. We need to know how to properly dress it. We don't need to put too much stuff in it. The sin of gluttony. We're never to desecrate the temple, which is where the Holy Spirit of God lives. We're not to put graffiti on the temple with tattoos. We're not to come along and pierce it with all kinds of metal. We're not to pollute the body with with smoke and poisonous foods and junk food and and all of the stuff that we do. In other words, my point with all of this is you need to know what the will of God is and you need to obey what the will of God is. And then when you come to God, you will pray what he wants for his glory and not for your own desires. And when you do that, he says he's going to answer your prayers. I'm trying to make this just as practical as I can. So to say it a little bit differently. If you're one of these that look for every excuse to avoid your prayer life, if you look for every excuse to avoid coming to church and setting under the teaching of the word of God, if you find yourself with no hunger for the word of God, you have no control of of your lust and you find yourself being a poor steward of your finances and whatever else it is that you're disobeying the Lord in, don't waste your time praying. The Lord's not going to hear that. Clean up your act first. Confess your sin. Repent. Walk faithfully with the Lord. Understand His will. And then pray His will. 
Friends, if you come before the Lord and you pray, Lord, give me purity of heart. Lord, help me to develop a secret devotion to you. Lord, give me a deeper understanding and love for Christ. Help me to understand your word and be able to apply it to my life. Help me to become more forgiving. Help me to love my wife and my husband and my children more. Lord, help me to become more like Christ. He's going to answer that. He will do that. It's a far cry from, Lord, help me to get enough money to buy that bass boat. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a bass boat, but I hope you understand there are priorities here. Well, beloved, we must develop the same passion for holiness and purity of worship that Jesus demonstrated. And then our prayers will move mountains. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Our prayers will move mountains. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we thank you again for this time that we could have in your truth. And we pray that it will bear much fruit in the life of every saint who is rooted in your saving grace. And Lord, I pray also that what was said here today will bring conviction to anyone that's living in rebellion. Lord, I pray that they will confess you as Savior and Lord before it is too late. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.